0: Well, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study over the life of Christ. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. So turn to the book of Luke, please, chapter 17, and we'll take a look at verse 20. Remember last week we were talking about, we ended the conversation last week when Christ had uh, healed the ten lepers and only one returned. So that's verse 19. He says, Your faith has made you whole, and he sends them away. Then in verse 20, and... When he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. What does that mean? It means the kingdom of God is not going to come in a way where you can visually point at it and say, Ah, there it is. I I see it lowering from heaven down to earth. I I see the throne room of God coming down from the clouds. That's what he's talking about when he says you're not going to be able to observe the coming of God's kingdom. He says, neither shall they say, lo here, lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So that shouldn't be too difficult of a concept to understand when you pair it with other verses, Christ stating— that in other parts of the Gospels, he's going to leave. He says, I'm going to leave you guys. Where I go, you cannot go. And the apostles uh, kind of reprimanded Christ. And said, you can't leave us. And that's when Christ turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter's saying, no, you, you can't do this. You can't, you can't leave us behind. You see, Christ knew his purpose for earth was for a, a very specific reason. There were other things Christ did while he was here. Obviously, he encouraged, he loved, he healed, he taught but his specific purpose for coming to earth was to save, to save mankind, to seek and to save the lost. And Christ was going to fulfill that purpose, whether Peter liked it or not. And that required Christ dying on the cross. So he knew he was leaving, and he said, I'm going to leave, but I will send someone in my place. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, Christ calls him. He says, the Comforter will be with you. In fact, we find in the book of Acts, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, seems to do more than just be with us, just be in our presence. The comfort of the Holy Spirit seems very clearly to me throughout Scripture that he is more than just here patting us on the head and saying, it's okay, you're not alone, I'm by your side. He is indwelling believers. Now that phrase indwelling can be a little confusing. Consider someone who hasn't grown up in church, someone who doesn't understand the Holy Spirit, and you talk about the Holy Spirit indwelling you, right away they're going to think about what? possession. They're going to think, wait a second, when I get saved, am I going to be possessed? That's, that's going to be weird, right? And, and I don't believe that is what God is relaying to us through Scripture, that we are somehow possessed by God or possessed by the Holy Spirit. A possession is a taking over of your body to some degree, taking over of your mind. In, in some cases in Scripture, we see a possession taking over literally the physical action. The person does not have the ability to, to say no to the possessed spirit, the demon within them, literally controls their body. I do not believe, even remotely, that that is what the Holy Spirit is doing or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that's how it's defined. I see in Scripture the indwelling of the Holy Spirit more so of the Holy Spirit kind of like uh, dwelling within, if you have a home and the Holy Spirit's in your home and dwelling with you and giving you direction, sitting on the couch next to you saying, hey, uh, have you considered this? Have you, are you making these choices? The Holy Spirit doesn't need to Literally possess your body to accomplish that. The Holy Spirit dwelling with us is the Holy Spirit being in our presence and never leaving or forsaking us, as Christ promised would be the case. God would never leave nor forsake us. So does that mean that the Holy Spirit is possessing us in a spiritual sense? I'm not convinced that's the case. I do believe we are filled by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that. But a filling of the Holy Spirit, again, doesn't imply a possession of the Holy Spirit. A filling of the Holy Spirit means we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, filled with the peace of the Holy Spirit, but most importantly, filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We're given the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the book of Galatians, and to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with this fruit. And as we are filled with the fruit of the Spirit, then we have the, the power to accomplish what the Holy Spirit asks and intends for us to do. So when Christ says the kingdom of God is going to be within you. He's basically stating that when I leave and I send the Holy Spirit, what is going to be sent is not going to be something visible from without. It's going to be something visible from within. When you see Christians, a true, sincere Christian, it's kind of hard to really nail down who is the true, sincere Christian because there's a lot of fakers out there. There's a lot of people who claim to be followers of Christ and maybe even put on a pretty good show. Their actions seem to line up with what you would think would be evidence of a follower of Christ. Until you really get to know them and you find out, wow, their actions are all just a game. It's just a ploy. They, they, They know how to walk the good walk, but it's not reflecting really what's going on inside of them. Because true Christianity is not what we do on the outside. True Christianity is what has already happened on the inside. Because what is the word Christianity? The word Christianity is a rephrase related to Christ, follower of Christ, child of Christ, Christ Christ-like. And Christ was constantly reprimanding those during his time on earth who thought it was all outward. He was constantly reprimanding the Pharisees who, who believed that as long as I do everything on the outside, as everything looks good on the outside, I'm okay. If I dress good, if I act good, if I worship in a proper way, if I pray in the proper way, as long as the outside looks good. Now, they would not have used the term Christian during the time of Christ. It was not till the first century church, after Christ's death and resurrection, that the word Christian was used. But in the same sense, saint, they would have used the word saint. The Old Testament word saint would be similar in in definition and usage to the New Testament word Christian. Basically, someone who is a follower of God. So the Pharisees would say, we are saints. We are followers of God because of look what we do. And Christ was constantly calling them out and saying, it's not so much what you do as it is who you are. Have you accepted God? And are you a just man? And the Old Testament says a just man walks by faith. Now you would expect to see the works of someone who loves God And walks by faith. You'd expect to see that, but the true Christianity, the true evidence of a saint is within, as Christ says here. The kingdom of God is within you, not without you. So don't be pointing around and saying, there's the kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of God. You should be asking, is here the kingdom of God? Do I have within me evidence that I have accepted Christ as my savior, that I am a Christian? In verse 22, he said unto his disciples, "...the days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it." He said, you're going to want to see visually where is God's kingdom, where is evidence of God dwelling with us. They shall say to you, see here, see there. Go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven... So shall also the Son of Man be in his day. What does that mean? When God does do something amazing, and he does throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, God does amazing things. That can be seen. He says, just like lightning, it's, it's there and it's gone. then it's over here and it's gone. That the visual part of God's awesome power isn't going to be displayed in a way where you can say, let's travel from afar and go see it. It's going to be there for months or years, and let's all go travel so we can see visually God's amazing power. A miracle that basically goes from day to day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. God says, I will have moments of my power being reflected on this earth. There will be moments that if you're in the right place at the right time, you will see amazing things. But like lightning, it's not there to stay. The part that is there to stay... Is the part I promised you, the Holy Spirit who would dwell with you to never leave you nor forsake you. The greatest evidence of God's existence outside of Scripture, because Scripture, I think, is a great proof of God in many ways. Not going to get into it tonight, but in many ways, Scripture is a great proof of God. Outside of Scripture, creation, looking at creation and recognizing that. There's a creation, there must be a creator. These, you can claim all day you like that these things just happened by chance, but in what other part of science do we ever say that something happens by chance in such a miraculous, ordered manner? In what part of science do we ever claim that something comes from nothing? Science doesn't make that claim about anything else, and yet it is claimed all of creation came from nothing, which is unscientific. When you look at creation, you see there is a creator. There has to be a God that started the process, that, that, that spoke everything into existence. But outside of that, I believe one of the greatest evidences of God is, as stated here, the kingdom of God within you. One of the greatest evidences of God is your connection to God, your relationship with God. When you are suffering and struggling with doubts, Look to the Bible, for sure. Look to creation, most definitely. The heavens declare the glory of God. Don't ignore that. But also, look to who God has been to you over the years. Look to what God has done for you over the years. The kingdom of God, Luke 17, verses 20 and on, the kingdom of God isn't visible to the eye. The kingdom of God is God dwelling within us, God dwelling within. With us, not in a visible sense, but in a relationship through a connection that can't be seen with the eyes. And then he warns us, Christians, from being tricked into thinking that man can point and say, There is God, come see him here. There is God, go see him there. And in my short lifetime of 39 years, I've lost track of how many times. Religions and religious people have claimed, there is God, go find him there. There is God, come find him here. Over and over and over again, people make these claims. I think some make the claims truly believing what they say. They've had an experience, maybe, maybe, they had this lightning bolt experience, right? Luke 17, verse 24. Maybe they truly did experience God in an amazing way, but they don't understand how God operates. And so they think because they saw the lightning, they said, ah, this is where God dwells. Let's all come here build a shrine to where the lightning touched the ground. And let's wait here until it comes back because here is God. And they sit there and they wait, not realizing the lightning is striking somewhere else now. <laughs> Maybe that is the case. But I'm, I'm convinced that for many people, they know exactly what they're doing. They, they haven't even seen the lightning. There's no spiritual lightning in Luke 17, 24 that they've experienced. There, there, there's no even uh, sincere belief that it exists. They are saying, here is God and there is God, to manipulate and control the masses. Look, I, I am a man who loves God. I'm a man who loves the Bible. I am a religious man, you say, Pastor Russ. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. I totally understand that sentiment, but the Bible uses the word religion. And it says that true religion is this, to care for the widows and the fatherless. So God is not afraid of the word religion. In fact, God uses the word religion and reminds us what religion really is. Religion is the outward show of the inward kingdom. We have the kingdom within us when we get saved. And the Holy Spirit dwells with us, and we are connected to God. That is Christianity. That is the kingdom. But then God says, all right, now let the others who, don't, who can't see the kingdom, let them see the religion. The religion should reflect the true kingdom, though. Which means you aren't going to do religious things to get something out of it. To say, look at me, I'm leaving a legacy. No, you're going to do something religious to reflect the kingdom within. And the best people to serve are those who need it most. In this culture, the widows and the fatherless would be the most needy and with no opportunity to return the favor. So Christ says, help them out more than anyone else. I am a religious man, but I am completely convinced that many people use religion to control others. Religion is used to control on a small scale, in a small church, by spiritual leaders, deacons, trustees, boards, committees. They want to control. What reason would they have to control the lives of 6 to 60 or even 600 people? What, what possible gain could they receive from controlling the lives of others? Well, aside from the financial gain, because when they control you, they control your pocketbook. Aside from that, aside from the gain of what they can get you to do for them, Aside from that, they gain pride. I think for many who seek to control others through religion, it comes down to pride most than anything else. I'm not saying there aren't those who want your money and will control you to get it. I'm not saying there aren't those who want your service and will control you to get your service. I think, though, a lot of them, they want the pride of being in charge. You go to a businessman and you try to control that businessman through finances, that businessman is right away going to determine, wait a second, <laughs> who knows more about business, you or me? And you're going to you're gonna have to show them you know more about business. Good luck with that. With, with a strong businessman or businesswoman, most businessmen are pretty shrewd. And even if you do more than, know more than business, they know enough about business where they don't care if you know more. They're not interested in following you because of your business sense. You go to someone and you want to talk about sports, even if you do know more about sports, they're so committed to their team, And their belief of sports, you know, good luck controlling them with sports. But you know what's interesting? The strongest business men and women can be controlled through religion. The most passionate sports lovers can be controlled through religion. You name them, religion has the potential to control them. Why? Because a businessman or woman could say, I know everything about business, but I know very little about the Bible. And it just takes someone who can portray themselves as knowing something about the Bible. And now, that person who's a very strong personality in the workforce follows you like a little lamb on Sunday morning. And that infuses the leader with pride. I've got Fortune 500 people who follow me. I've got CEOs. I've got politicians who who come to my beck and call. I've got some of the most powerful people in our community who ask me how they can help me. Oh, that makes me feel good. Control. And Christ is warning us of those kinds of people. Oh, God is over here. God is over there. Follow us. We know where God is. We can take you to him. And Christ says, that's not how my kingdom works. (laughs) If they tell you they can point out and show you where is my kingdom, then they don't know what they're talking about because my kingdom dwells within you. Yes, there are moments where you can experience the awesomeness of God, but those moments are like lightning, verse 24. They don't last, and then his power will be displayed somewhere else. Verse 25. But first must he suffer many things, who, Christ, the Messiah, and be rejected of this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, So shall it also be also in the days of the Son of Man. What happened in the days of Noah? Well, in the days of Noah, they ate, they drank, they married, they had wives, given in marriage, Noah enters the ark, the flood came, they were all destroyed. Likewise, verse 28, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, drank, bought, sold, planted, builded. The same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, destroyed them all. Verse 30, even thus shall it be in the day of... When the Son of Man is revealed, in that day, he which shall be upon the housetop, and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. All right, verse 31. What is verse 31 referring to? When the Son of Man is revealed. Who's the Son of Man? The Son of Man is one of the many names for Christ. Well, isn't Christ already revealed now? Not necessarily. Christ, in a way, revealed himself to some. But did Christ reveal himself on, a, on an international level to the world. No, he did not. Satan even tempted Christ, took him to the top of the, of the temple, and he said, jump off the temple ground. This is when Christ, in the earlier part, before he goes into ministry, he's being tempted 40 days in the wilderness, and he's, jump off and let the, let the angels catch you, and everyone will see that you are the Messiah, and Christ rebukes Satan. That's not how it's going to work, Satan. No, my time to reveal myself on that level isn't now. That will be later. I am not here to reveal myself as the king of the world and to take the reins of earth. No, I'm here to seek and save the lost. I will come back another time to be the king of the world. So when will Christ be revealed to the world as king? Deserving and receiving the authority as creator of the world. When will he do that? That's not here, and that's not on the cross. That's later, even later from today. The Bible tells us of this second coming, second being the second time he comes to earth. The first time he came to earth already happened. He came to earth 2,000 years ago to seek and to save the lost. He died. He rose again. He went to heaven, and he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell with us for now. But in the Old Testament, there is prophecy of the Messiah, reigning on earth as king. And during this time, literally, world peace is achieved. Something the world has been looking for for thousands of years, they won't receive until Christ comes back and provides it for them as the king of the world. In the book of Revelation, we're given more detail above and beyond what the Old Testament prophets gave us. Christ is going to return. He is going to come back as king. What will happen for the years up to Christ's second return, chaos. We're told of seven years of chaos, where Satan is allowed even more authority, what seems he's even given now, that God allows Satan to set up his own leader, the Antichrist, over the leader of the world. Something Satan is not allowed to do until God says he can. That's later. After seven years of Satan just causing havoc in the world with the Antichrist, and seven years of God judging the world, as he promised he would do, for the sins that they've been committing, we've been committing for thousands of years. After seven years, Christ is going to return. And when Christ returns at the end of that seven years, this, verse 31, this is what God tells us to expect. Verse 31 is referring to, to the second coming of Christ. So let's read it again. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away, and he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night, there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken, and the other shall be left. I would venture to guess that when you have read that verse in the past, you thought it meant the rapture. That two will be in a bed, and the rapture will take place, and one will be taken to heaven. This verse, these verses are not talking about the rapture. They're not talking about when Christ comes in the cloud to receive his church into the air. They are talking about when Christ returns to be the king. What does Christ do when he sets foot on the earth to be king? What does he do? He judges the remaining unsaved. How does that judgment play out for them? Are they given a slap on the wrist, put in prison for three years, and then released? Nope. The Bible tells us in Revelation, when he returns, those who still have not trusted him will be killed. Christ is going to enact final judgment on the surviving, and I think surviving few, after seven years of tribulation. Surviving few. So what does that mean when one shall be taken and one left? The one that is left stays alive and enters into the thousand-year physical reign of Christ on this earth. The time when people will be able to say, there, I see the kingdom of God, come with me. Come with me as we go visit the kingdom of God. That is when people can say, I see it, come with me. During the thousand years. Up until that time, you cannot claim, I see it, come with me. (laughs) No, it's, I've got it, let me show you how you can have it too. Right now, it's, I've got it, do you want it? Not, I see it, let's go to it. But when Christ comes back, it will be, I know where he is, let's go to him. So the one that is taken, where is where are they taken? They're not taken to heaven. It's not the rapture. They're not taken into the millennial reign. They are taken by Christ, and I believe they are judged and killed. These verses are telling us, verse thirty three whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it if you are seeking to live this life for what you can get out of it and you never seek and embrace christ you will lose your life and more than just this life you'll lose it eternally and then the verses coming up tell us of those who did two men one bed one taken one left two women grinding it together. What does that mean? Making food, making dinner. One shall be taken, one left. Two men in the field, one taken, one left. That is very interesting. If you've read the book of Revelation and you know just how crazy those seven years will be, how is it possible that a believer would survive seven years of chaos, not only by the Antichrist seeking to kill all believers, God judging the world. In fact, in another passage, Christ warns the Jews specifically, if you want to survive the seven years, go hide in the hills. Because if you stay in the cities and towns, you will be hunted down and you'll be killed. But it seems here that some will choose to stay in cities and miraculously survive it. How they'll survive it, I do not know not only survive it, but survive it dwelling with unbelievers. That may not seem so crazy to us now. Many of us have family members that don't go to church, don't believe in God. Unbelievers, we love them. They love us. It's not crazy to think that a Christian can can dwell with or among unbelievers. I think it'd be crazy to think that we couldn't do that now. But I'm telling you, the seven-year tribulation will be a lot different than what it is now. The Bible talks about how unbelievers Uh, how how believers will be essentially hunted down. I mean, there's going to be pretty bad for believers. How these people will live in a city when Christians are being hunted down and live in homes with unbelievers supposedly hunting down Christians, living a double life. That's all I can assume. They're living a double life. Because if these Christians were sincerely living a life that reflected what they believed, they'd be hunted down and killed. (laughs) So all I can assume is these believers— are not acting out their faith, but they are saved. And then at the end of the tribulation, they'll be spared, ironically. And those who are never saved will be taken and judged. Verse 37, they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Well, that's interesting. (laughs) What What does that mean? Well, if what I've said is true... If my interpretation of this text is correct, when the one that is taken, the disciples are saying, where will they be taken? Where will the ones that are taken, where will they go? He said, they will end up where the bodies are and the birds are. Now, when you talk about bodies and birds, what do you think is being referenced here? Yep, dead bodies and the carrion eating the dead bodies you say whoa 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 eagles here you're asking on eagles you know are eagles really eating the flesh keep in mind that the word eagle here referring to just birds in general uh old english talking you know hundreds of years old uh uh, interpretation that i'm using so that word eagle doesn't necessarily mean the bald eagles of america here we're just talking about carrion these people will be taken where the bodies are and the carrion will be at And Revelation, again, gives us more detail. Revelation gives us the detail of the fact that the the dead, it will take months to clean up the dead. That's with the assistance of the carrion, of the birds, eating the flesh of the dead. So I think it's pretty obvious to me, verse 37 kind of clinching the deal there, that those who are taken are going to go to where the bodies are at and the birds are at. That's not a place you want to be. Which means this has to refer to when Christ returns to earth as king, not the rapture. I said this just the other day, that whenever you talk about something in reference to heaven and hell, we are left with a choice. What is going to be our response to the truth that we are reminded again tonight? That there is an eternity. That we are going somewhere eternally. We are going to heaven or we are going to hell for eternity. What are we going to do with that information? And I'm going to challenge you again tonight, as I have challenged you before. Don't ignore it. It's so easy to just forget it and keep living your life the same way you've been living. Nothing changes. But this truth is truth whether you think about it or not. The truth of our eternal souls, the truth of God's judgment on the unsaved, that is a truth that you're ignoring it doesn't change. And so what is your life doing about that truth? You say, well, Pastor Russ, I'm saved. It's enough for me. Enough for you, maybe. Is it enough for those you love? Is it enough for those you don't even know? When we talk about eternal souls, the question is asked in the Bible, what is the value, what would you pay for a soul. How much is one soul worth to you? I can't put a price on it. And I believe that is the implication of the Bible as well. There is is no price you can attach to a human soul in the scope of eternity. And so, what cost are you willing to pay in this life, physically, emotionally, spiritually? What cost are you willing to pay for the priceless soul of another. I can't think of a cost I'm not willing to pay for the soul of another. And I challenge you to consider others not by their politics. Well, I wouldn't pay anything for them, they're a, you fill in the blank, Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever it is you don't like. I wouldn't pay anything for them, they're a, this politics. Well, I wouldn't pay anything for them. You know, their lifestyle is this. I wouldn't pay, they're not worth anything. And you just fill in the blank of whatever it is that they're not worth to you because of a lifestyle choice, because of a political stand. They're not worth anything to you. You're looking at the outward, you're looking at the choices. You need to consider the soul. How much is the soul worth? Priceless. I'm not condoning poor choices in life, I'm not condoning immoral lifestyles, I'm not condoning violence. But I am condoning Christians who want to attach a price to a soul because of the bad choices we make in this life. That's a problem for me. The soul is eternal whether we make good choices or bad choices. And it's going somewhere. And we're reminded of that here. Let's move on. The next passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 14, we're actually going to skip that passage, and I'll tell you why. I am going to be teaching that passage Sunday morning during this coming uh, Sunday. We are on, on the last Sunday morning of every month. We're going to be having a prayer group together with our church. I'm going to teach on the topic of prayer for about 15, 20 minutes. Then we're going to pray together. And this is the passage I'm going to be preaching on this Sunday morning. So many of you that are here, you're going to be here Sunday morning. No reason for you to hear it twice. And for those of you that are not here I'll make sure that I record it. I don't usually record my Sunday morning life groups, but I will record this one just so that it is available to those who want to listen online to the life of Christ and want all the detail. I will have that later. So let's move on to the uh, next passage of Scripture. And that's going to be in Matthew chapter 19. So let's go back to the book of Matthew. And we're going to be discussing not nearly as in-depth as I have covered in the past. I actually did a series on Old Testament law and dealt with this pretty intensely. That's the, the, the question, debate of marriage and divorce. I remember preaching a message um, on marriage and divorce. I'm going to deal with it here because it's in the text, and this is where we find ourselves. But if you want a more um, in-depth overall view of Scripture regarding divorce— Speak with me afterwards. I'll get your number. I can send a text to messages that I've preached that are more inclusive of Scripture than just the couple of passages I'm going to show you tonight. So Matthew chapter 19, let's look at verse 3. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for what? Every cause. Now, in the Old Testament... God gives boundaries for divorce, and he gives the the process in which it should happen. The boundaries for divorce were pretty broad in the Old Testament. The process for which it happened was basically a legal matter where someone couldn't just throw their wife out of the house. There had to be uh, a process where the papers were filled out, a judge was involved, and... Uh, even financial obligation to the spouse in some cases. Not in every case. But if you look at the Old Testament, there were times where the husband was obligated to compensate his wife in some way financially, give back maybe a dowry that was brought into the marriage. She gets it back, which is, could be a large amount of money, goes back with her. It could be other things where in a divorce, in the Old Testament, a woman on occasion could walk away with money, depending on the situation. Now, depending on the situation, because in the Old Testament... If a woman or a man was caught in adultery, meaning they were married, but it, having intimate relations with someone who was not their spouse, didn't matter if you were a man or a woman, it was a death penalty. You could say that God was overly cruel to women. It was men, too. Men were put to death, too, for adultery. So it wasn't gender-specific. You could say, well, then it's just cruel that God would have anyone put to death for immorality. Well, that's a debate you got to have up with God, <laughs> I'm not the one that makes the rules. God is, and God made it pretty clear in the Old Testament for the government system that he set up. He obviously believes still today that sexual promiscuity is a pretty big deal, that having sex out of marriage is not a light thing to God. Now, we talk a lot as Christians about the LGBTQ movement and how should we respond to that, and is that acceptable, and You know we can have that conversation another time too. But look, uh, God's not a respecter of persons. God didn't in the Old Testament there wasn't a lesser sentence for those having sex, straight sex outside of marriage, than for those having uh, a gay or lesbian sex outside of marriage. They they were all given the same penalty. It was death. Having sex out of marriage was death. So in the Old Testament, you weren't necessarily divorcing a lot when someone committed adultery because they were going to be put to death. Having said that, obviously there were occasions where maybe the spouse didn't want the other one put to death, like Joseph and Mary, the mother of Jesus. That was a case where Joseph believed Mary was being unfaithful because she was pregnant, and Joseph knew it wasn't him. And so Joseph, we're told, being a just man put her away privately, didn't want her stoned to death, killed. But he still had a divorce process, a writing of divorcement was going to go through. He was still going through the legal process, but not accusing her publicly, which would have resulted in her death. So I'm sure there are other cases in the Old Testament where men and women cared about their spouse but were so hurt by the, the unfaithfulness that they couldn't stay married, but nor did they want them stoned to death in the streets, so they would just get divorced. That did happen, I'm sure. But the law was you die. So then what reasons were people finding themselves... In divorce. The Bible in the Old Testament gives a couple of those reasons. Again, I'm not going to go really in depth today. But in the Old Testament, it could come down to um, the relationship is basically just broken. The Bible refers it to as, as uh, the wife does not please the man. Now, you've got to understand something. That does not mean she's not his slave and doesn't massage his feet at his every request and cook his meals every way that he desires. It, it, I think in the context, it's talking about the fact that just the marriage isn't going to work. The two of them don't get along. They don't like each other. You say, well, then why did they get married? If they don't like each other. Well, unfortunately, in the Old Testament, you find a lot of marriages were arranged marriages. It's not that God designed it that way. God didn't say how it should happen. God didn't say uh, a woman gets married to the, to the man that the, that the dad chooses, but that is how it happened in Jewish culture. The parents chose the spouse. And so a lot of times, young women and young men find themselves married to someone they never met until fairly recently, and now they're getting married. And it's just not going to work. Like the personality difference, the philosophy difference, it's not going to happen. And so in that case, God says, I get it. Your parents make the wrong choice. (laughs) You're going to live a life of torture and misery because your parents make the wrong decision. Maybe the parents weren't looking out for your best interest. Maybe they made a choice because of finances. The other family paid them a large portion to marry off their their child to your child. And so the parents in their greed, the parents in their lack of wisdom, the parents in their stupidity, selfishness, and pride made a really bad match for you. And so the wife is not good for the husband. The husband is not good for the wife. Isn't it interesting that in the Old Testament, God says, I understand, and I'm not going to make you stay together. Wow. Like most Baptists, most churches wouldn't preach that, would they? Most churches would be like, no, 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 they got to live in misery for the rest of their life. They committed, that's, they're locked in. That's how it goes. You know, suck it up, buttercup. That's just kind of what you got to go through. Whereas in the Old Testament, that's not, that's not what God said. No, if it comes down to they're going to be at each other's throats the rest of their life, you know what? It's better they just get divorced then. But it does seem to imply that it should be a decision made earlier on. When it talks about the wife not pleasing the husband, not getting along, that's like, Uh, in reference to them like just getting married, and then within a couple of weeks, months, they realize, okay, this isn't going to work. Then you're right; Make the decision sooner than later then. Are there other cases in the Old Testament where divorce happened? Yes, and the Bible lays those out, and I spent months. I mean, it was like, I think, four plus months at least, maybe significantly more. Time kind of runs together for me, where I basically went through every single Old Testament law. And this is on Wednesday nights, and it's online. You can watch it online on Sermon Audio, on our, on our uh, website. But Old Testament law, broken down for you by law, and a lot of it dealing with marriage and divorce. All right, then we get to the New Testament. You get to passages in the Gospels, like this one. What is Christ's response? Well, first of all, what's the question? The question, again, is can they divorce for anything? Because when God allowed the boundaries of divorce to be fairly broad in the Old Testament, and I think personally, largely due to the fact that marriages were arranged, and because of that reason, there was obviously a a lot of bad marriages happening. And so I I believe the divorce opportunity was broadened because of the culture that God was dealing with when he gave that law. Unfortunately, it seems that the Jews broadened it even more. And now it's like any reason, any reason at all. That you want to get divorced, you just you just do it. Sign the papers, no questions asked. That is the culture we're living in now. (laughs) That's the American culture. It doesn't. You don't need a reason. Did you know? As early as like I think sixty years ago, you had to have a good reason to get divorced. If you didn't have a good reason, you might find yourself unable to divorce, or at least unable to do so in a way that was financially good for you. I mean, because early as the mid 1900s, to get divorced was a big deal. And it was a lot harder to do so with the person wanting the divorce coming out financially stable. Now it doesn't matter what reason you have. You don't even have to have a reason to say, I don't want to get married anymore. I don't want to be married, and it's a done deal. That is what the Pharisees are saying now. Can we do that now? Can we just be in a place where there's no reason whatsoever, we just want it to happen? Christ responds and says in verse 4, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Well, that's an interesting verse right there about a whole other issue altogether male and female, God only made two genders, but let's move on. Verse 5, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. God's intention was not a forced arrangement. God's intention for marriage was not a business deal. God's intention for marriage was not an obligation to the legacy of your family. God's intention, what is that a young man and a young woman, or a, young, a man and woman of any age, would willingly leave their family, whom they love, to connect on a soul level with another that they love. They would leave the family they've got to willingly create and start a new family together. So if you want to talk about what was God's intention for marriage, I would say it wasn't arranged. And I would say this verse proves that. It was not the parent sending the child, as was the case in the Jewish culture. was sending you out. Girls who didn't want to leave home. Oh, I promise you. Crying girls at the altar. Didn't want to leave home. Didn't know this guy. And they're crying, being forced into a marriage. And these parents for their own reasons made it happen. That is not what I read here. I do not read a shotgun wedding being sent and forced. I read two people man and a woman willingly wanting to connect on that level with someone else. God says, that was how I intended it. That is my desire. That is what marriage should look like. That's the healthiest place for marriage. When two people want to connect on that level. For how long? Well, verse 6. Wherefore, they are no more twain but one flesh. What God therefore hath joined together, let no man put asunder forever at least in this life we do know that there's no marriage in heaven christ states that there's no babies in heaven in the sense of babies being born obviously i've told you before i do believe that god in his mercy if a young infant dies before they have the chance to accept or reject christ the bible is pretty clear in the old testament to me with david in his situation that he would see his young infant son again in heaven that God is not going to send a baby to hell who never had a chance to accept or reject, in the sense of, it didn't even have the chance to understand creation around them and to recognize that there was a God. Their brain didn't process that level. I would think that would also include those who um, struggle with a mental handicap and are and are unable to process information about God. I believe God is merciful, and they go to heaven. But I don't believe that they remain babies for the rest of their life, you know, eternity. I think that they are automatically uh, put in a similar position as anyone of any age when we die. You know, the, the, the elderly don't stay elderly for eternity, and the infants don't stay infants for eternity. Whatever it looks like in heaven, we all kind of meet that point. But babies aren't born in heaven. Men and women aren't married in heaven. So forever in this life, that is God's intention. Verse 7 they said to him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Verse 8. Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. Suffered, meaning allowed. But from the beginning, it was not so. Beginning of what? Beginning of time. From the beginning of time, God did not intend for marriage to be a dating relationship. If it doesn't work out, find a new one. Break up and start over against someone else. That's not God's intention for marriage. It's not a part-time gig. It's not a a game that you play that makes you happy for a few years and you try somewhere else, that was not God's intention for marriage. He says, verse 9, I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of a man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. If it's that extreme, then why bother getting married? Because who can find the one that they can stay with the rest of their life and not have the option of walking away from? Like, that doesn't exist. These are men talking here. These are the, the, the male disciples saying, there is no woman out there worth being with the rest of your life. So why even bother trying? That's an impossibility, they say. Verse 11, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it was given. There are some eunuchs, which are so born from their mother's womb. That does not mean eunuch in the physical, literal sense, incapable of having sexual intimacy. But someone who, from their mother's womb, God designed for them to be single the rest of their life. That was their design. That was God's plan for them. That was God's call for them. That they are a eunuch by choice, you might say, but also by accepting God's choice for them. Not a physical incapability. There are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. Now, that's, that's the physical one. That's where they didn't have a choice. They were taken, captured, mutilated, and now there is no opportunity for intimacy. And there be eunuchs which they have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, these are some who could have been married. God would have allowed. God, e- God even may be designed for them to be married. But they say, thank you, but no thank you. God, I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate the offer for marriage. But I'm content serving you the rest of my life. It would not have been wrong for them to be married. Being married is not a wrong choice. God said you were fully capable of being married. Everything worked properly. (laughs) I designed for you to be married. But you chose to give it up to serve me better. We're given one example, at least, in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. We don't know if the Apostle Paul ever was married. It is assumed that he was because he was a Pharisee. And according to historical context, it was, it was more common than not that Pharisees were married. In fact, it was rare when Pharisees weren't married. It was kind of part of their gig. Their job description was to be married. So it would have been odd that the Apostle Paul would not have been married, although it is a slight possibility. But we do know in his letters to the churches, he says, I wish that all men were like me. What? Not married. He says, because when you are married, you're distracted. He didn't condemn marriage. He didn't say it was a bad thing. He just says, you inevitably are distracted by the marriage. Distracted from what? Paul says, distracted from what really matters, the kingdom of God. He says, I'm not married. I'm not distracted. I can accomplish a lot for God's kingdom without those distractions. And I wish all men were like me. Now, that is Paul stating his opinion. That is not Paul giving you god's heart because obviously god's heart is for marriage for many for most well his command to adam and eve and their descendants was to be fruitful and multiply get married and have kids that was his command so god designs for humanity to be married but that does not mean every single person and it also means just because god designed it doesn't mean you have to follow it christ it seems to me is commending those in this verse i think it's a commendation Verse 12, he says, Some, for the kingdom of heaven's sake, for the right reason, they chose to not accept what was a good decision, marriage. They chose a different path for themselves. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. There is a danger in taking A very difficult conversation and defining the boundaries of that conversation by just one or two verses. Especially when the one or two verses are basically mirror verses of themselves. You say, well, Pastor, wait right there. These are not just any verses. These are verses, literally the words of Christ. Okay, let me challenge your thinking. Is any part of Scripture less or more authoritative than any other part of Scripture? Well, the words of Christ should have the most authority. Anything in red, in my Bible, red-letter Bible, if it's red, Christ said it, that should have the most authority. Everything else should come under that. Well, then you misunderstand how the Bible was written and the inspiration of it. Because all the words of the Bible are God's words. All of Scripture is inspired by God, we are told. Every part of it. So to claim that one part has more authority than another shows your ignorance regarding the inspiration of Scripture. God inspired all of it, not just what Christ said here. So then in that case, even the words of Christ need to be taken in context with the other words of Christ that weren't spoken by him, but given to men who wrote them down, because they're all the Word of God. This entire Bible is the Word of God. So there's a danger in creating a theology off of Versus you choose that best fit your comfort level, or your tradition, or your belief system. Sure, you could create a theology, you could create a strong case for a lot of things if you just chose a particular set of verses, or even parts of verses. When you look at entire Scripture and you do a deeper research of marriage and divorce as a whole within Scripture, you find there is more information. You say, well, Pastor Russ, Christ already dealt with the Old Testament. So whatever laws were allowed in the Old Testament, Christ addressed those, and he said that it was not his intention for there to be a divorce. And the only reason there was divorce in the Old Testament was for the hardness of the Jews. Yes, but remember, I told you, in the Old Testament, it was pretty broad. Divorce was pretty broad. And that's what the Pharisees said. Can we just divorce for any reason? Because that's what it came down to through the law. Does that mean that if a woman finds herself in a marriage where the man is abusing her, physically abusing her, hitting her, kicking her, punching her, that she is bound, morally obligated to remain married to that man? He's not sleeping around. He's He's got a lot of faults. Unfortunately for her, it's not sleeping around. If we can just get that guy to sleep with the girl, then he could then she can divorce him. But until then, ah, she's got to stick it out. She's got to remain with him. And the kids have to remain in that home, too, those poor kids, because you know, he just won't sleep with another woman. That's too bad. As soon as we catch him doing that, then she can divorce him. Because that's what a lot of Christians think. That's what a lot of Christians teach. That's the judgment by which a lot of Christians use when looking at others in marriage and divorce. He literally beats me. Well, has he slept with another woman? Nope. Well, then go back to him tonight. Take a hit for the team and pray that God will change his heart. That's the advice, broken down. Obviously, I'm being facetious, but essentially that's the advice given to a lot of women. Take a hit for the team, literally. Because Christ said only adultery is acceptable for divorce. I want to challenge that thinking. In the Old Testament, if a man was caught abusing his family, physically abusing, you know what happened to him? He was taken out and stoned to death. Now, it never actually deals with a man hitting his wife. I in my opinion, I can only assume because it was just outside of the realm of possibility for for the Jews to consider in that culture. It just, you know, beating up their wives wasn't a common thing. So for whatever reason, God didn't lay down that law. But there is a law about a man beating up his parents. You have that scripture about a young man who hits his parents. That is not talking about a five-year-old who slaps his nana, okay? It's not talking about a seven-year-old who kicks his dad. That is talking about a young adult man who is beating up his elderly parents. It's elder abuse. And in the Jewish culture, In the law that God gave, if a man was physically abusing abusing his elderly parents, he was to be killed. Now, with that context, do you think that a man who was physically beating up his wife would not also suffer the same fate? I think he would. Very strongly believe that. So, there was no need for a woman to divorce an abusive husband. She didn't have to. The guy would be killed, she could start over with someone else. It was not acceptable for a man to be hitting his family. So when we don't understand that truth, and we say, well, Christ stated only adultery is a reason to divorce. You've got to understand, Christ is talking to the Jews who did have the laws of physical abuse was death. Therefore, the Jews would not have been including wife abuse or even husband abuse, spousal abuse, In divorce, because for the Jews, they'd be killed. Christ is responding to the Pharisees within this culture and the laws that they had at that time. Christ is not responding to the world as a whole, future generations, other cultures of how divorce or their culture might look. He's talking to these Jews in relation to their understanding of divorce at that time. And divorce for abuse wasn't needed because the spouse would be dead. So there's no way I would ever counsel a woman to go back to an abusive home. I'd say get out of there right away. And uh, if you, you know, need assistance, the church will help you. And if you want a divorce, you have my full support. Like, I'm not going to tell you to go back to an abusive uh, marriage. It breaks my heart that many pastors would do the opposite. No, you need to go back. If you don't, you can't be a member of this church anymore because, you know, it's wrong. To not be abused by your husband because he's your husband. He can do whatever he wants. As long as he doesn't sleep with other women. That's the only thing you can't do. 1 Corinthians, let's turn there. Chapter 7, we're almost done tonight. As I said, I'm not going nearly as in-depth if you think we'll Pastor Russ, There's a lot of holes in your theory and arguments. I've already claimed that it wouldn't be in-depth. So if you want the full information, you've got to talk to me, and I'll give you messages that, are go, that go way more in-depth than what I'm doing tonight. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now, concerning the things wherever you wrote unto me, it is, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's in a sexual way. Obviously, many women touch each other. They even kiss each other. Uh, it was encouraged to the church to kiss each other with a holy kiss, which means it is possible to have physical contact with the opposite sex in a non-sexual way, in an appropriate way that the culture allows. Now, unfortunately, we live in a culture now United States, American culture, North American culture, where that's pretty much not going to happen. You know, between uh, men and women of um, similar ages, if you are married, you, you just got to keep your hands off the opposite sex regardless in the American culture. But you know what? Not in all American cultures because Central American, South American, I mean, they're, they're hugging on each other, kissing each other on the cheek. and European cultures, chicken, kissing each other on the cheek. And, and some cultures, on the lips. And it's just a cultural thing. There's no sexual implication. No one's offended by it. No one thinks anything of it. It's a cultural thing. They grew up doing that. And in the Jewish culture, they grew up kissing each other. I think on the cheek more than the lips. And the apostles recognize that and say, look, it's not like you can't do that. Just make sure you, you keep it platonic. Make sure it doesn't become something sexual and represent Christ well in whatever physical interaction that you have with the opposite gender. But in this verse, he's saying, hey, Keep your hands off each other in any sexual way. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and to let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Likewise, also the wife unto the husband. Verse 3 is referring to the obligation that a spouse has to their other spouse sexually. It shouldn't have to be an obligation in a marriage, but sometimes it might become that, where one spouse needs something the other spouse doesn't necessarily want. That does happen. And so it is, to a level, the obligation of the spouse to ensure that the other spouse is cared for. <laughs> now, again, it shouldn't have to come to that. And if, if your marriage is healthy, there are other things that can be done. But I'm not giving marriage counseling tonight, and especially not on that level, so let's move on. Verse 4. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband, likewise also the husband not power of his body, but the wife. Verse 4 is basically a mirror verse of verse 3, saying the same thing in a different way. Verse 5, again, saying the same thing, defraud ye not one another. Basically, don't uh, manipulate your spouse with sex. <laughs> don't say, well, if you do this, maybe, you know, maybe we can work something out. You know, that Don't defraud them and use intimacy in a manipulative manner to get what you want. All right, let's move on to the actual uh, divorce part, right? Verse 6, but I speak this by permission, And not a commandment. For I would that all men were even as myself. But every man hath power, hath his proper gift of God. That's the verse I was talking about regarding Paul's desire that all would be unmarried. Verse 9. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. Better to marry than to burn. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. It's a strong, a strong statement that if you're going to get married, you should be in it for the long haul. But, verse 11, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. The Apostle Paul here recognizes that there are times where it just won't work out. Just like God recognized in the Old Testament, there are times where it won't work out for one reason or the other. And if it's not going to work out, it's not going to work out. He recognizes that. And he says, so, if you've got to leave, all right, understandable, you've got to leave. But don't let it be something you do lightly. Now, in a similar statement to Christ, he says, if you do leave, remain unmarried. Let's move on, though. Verse 13, And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not... And if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. What does that word bondage mean? Bondage to the marriage covenant, which also means remarriage. If you look at that verse... And the verse following, what do you not find? You do not find a commandment to stay unmarried. What I see in the verses above, 11 above, is if you're just marrying and divorcing for no reason, then you know what? Maybe you just need to stay single the rest of your life. But there are cases where when you divorce, you can get remarried. There's at least two. At least two that are mentioned here that I'm going to mention tonight and we'll be done. The first one, Christ mentioned already. If you're getting divorced due to an affair, adultery, unfaithfulness, Christ already said you can get remarried. He said it by saying the antithesis. He said it by saying if you get remarried and it's not due to adultery, then you are committing adultery. That's what he said. He said for someone who divorces and gets remarried and it's not due to adultery, they themselves are committing adultery. If that's true, the opposite is also true, which means to get divorced and remarried is okay if it is due to adultery. In my opinion, that's how I see it. In this text, the Apostle Paul is saying if you find yourself in a marriage where your spouse is not a believer and they abandon you, they leave you, they're gone, you're not obligated to remain unmarried. You're not obligated to stay in a marriage where the person has abandoned you, and you're not bound, you're not obligated to live single the rest of your life. I have known some who say, well, does that apply to a person who might be a Christian but doesn't act like a Christian and abandons their spouse? You know what? You can't really know the heart of another one. I will tell you this. The Bible says that those who do not care for their family are worse than an infidel. So I think there might be some justification to the belief that a spouse who would abandon their family, their, their, their faith is in doubt <laughs> that they're abandoning their family when, Christ, when, the, when God says they're worse than an infidel for they don't care for their family. And so, although I wouldn't be one encouraging, let's just divorce and remarry if you know, your spouse leaves you, I, I definitely wouldn't be judging him on that because he says, for this cause, abandonment, remarriage would be acceptable. For this cause, abandonment, you're not obligated by the law to remain, in a faithless, abandoned marriage. Now, I've just given you a few references. So, with that context, is divorce something God wants? Obviously not. Is divorce God's heart? No, you can't say that is God's heart. But just like the Old Testament, we also have hard hearts. We also find ourselves sometimes, humans find themselves in marriages that were not what it was seemed it was going to be. Someone lied big time. And during the dating and engagement process, there was a lot of lies and deception. And it all came out in the marriage. I don't believe it's God's heart that you now have to suck it up the rest of your life either. I'm not pro divorce. I'm not encouraging divorce. But neither am I encouraging someone to waste the next thirty years of their life because they made a bad decision when they were 18. You take divorce very seriously. God sure did. And understand this. If you do divorce, there's a lot of consequences that will follow you. But so are there a lot of consequences if you stay in a marriage, especially an abusive one, an unfaithful one, an abandoned one. I mean, there's consequences there too. (laughs) So is divorce something Christians can do? Yes. I believe so. Divorce is something Christians can do. And on occasion, are there opportunities for a Christian to be remarried after divorce? I would say yes. But do not ever take it lightly. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for tonight. The chance again to discuss your word, truth, to be challenged by it. I pray that we would take it with us. And uh, although this direct passage may not apply to us in our marriages It can help us see things a little differently as we come into contact with those who have suffered abusive marriages. In Jesus' name, amen.